0: This is the Green Street News, your weekly environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the subject board today, beauty products marketed to black, brown, and Asian communities are filled with toxic chemicals known to cause health problems. The oil and gas industries are getting into the geothermal business. And extreme weather events are now costing the U.S. over $160 billion every year. And then stay tuned as we talk with an amazing woman about her work on microplastics in farm soil and how they may be causing all kinds of problems for our food supply in the not-too-distant future. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week that we should all know about?
1: I've got some great articles that Good. I think will be really interesting. Okay. Okay. So the first one is written by Grace Van Dielen. It was published by Environmental Health News. The title is Racist Beauty Standards Leave Communities of Color More Exposed to Harmful Chemicals. Hmm. Racist beauty standards are driving the use of beauty products that are often contaminated with chemicals that alter the human endocrine system, causing organ damage and spur cancer in communities of color, according to new research. Chemical straighteners and skin lighteners, beauty products frequently used among Black and Asian Americans, sometimes contain harmful ingredients such as formaldehyde, mercury, and endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and have been linked to health problems such as uterine and breast cancer kidney and nervous system damage, and more. New research published today in Environmental Justice shows the use of these potentially toxic products is spurred by racialized beauty standards. Quote, beauty norms that glorify European features do impact product use, end quote. Lariah Edwards said, an environmental health researcher at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health and a lead author on the study. The study found that perceptions of others' beliefs about beauty was an important driver of product use. People of color have used chemical straighteners and skin lighteners for decades as a way to more easily assimilate or to widen their social or career opportunities, the authors wrote. For example, they noted a 2021 Pew Research survey found that 59% of Hispanic adults believed that having lighter skin would, quote, help them get ahead, end quote, in the U.S.
0: Can't they make these products without the harmful ingredients? I mean, without things like formaldehyde? Isn't it possible to formulate the products without them? I
1: don't know. This is a question for green chemistry. Yeah. Green chemistry isn't supported enough by our government. We support all kinds of things like the oil and gas industry and, you know, chemical industries and whatever. But why aren't we supporting green chemistry? Green chemistry is exactly what you said, looking for safer alternatives that do the same thing as these toxic ingredients. It's something that our friend out in California, Arlene Blum, is really pushing hard.
0: She's been at the forefront of of green chemistry for a long time. Uh,
1: Green chemistry and also for banning toxic chemicals as a class and not just one chemical at a time.
0: Yeah, which is how we regulate things, right? That's right.
1: Okay. This Um, is so unfortunate. This is really upsetting. So, There are few regulations in place to keep consumers safe from potentially toxic beauty products. The Food and Drug Administration, for example, does not approve beauty products before they're sold by stores and was only recently given the power to recall beauty products shown to impact human health. The FDA's policies said Edwards are very much outdated. Tracy Bathia, a professor who studies cancer health disparities at Georgetown University who was not involved in the study, said in an email to EHN that current government regulations are failing to protect the public.
0: This is the FDA at work again. We've been talking about this for a while. About how the FDA is just failing on you know on food and on cosmetics and all these things, just unable to move, yep. unable to regulate what they're supposed to be you know and regulating.
1: highly influenced by the industries that they're supposed to regulate. It's but criminal. But you know we tell the same stories with it's slightly different. But,
0: <laughs> but this is so unfortunate. These products are targeting a certain part of the population. Exactly. And. You know, you can't blame people for wanting to, you know, try things to...
1: No, you can't blame people who want to try things that they think may help them.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, okay. okay. That's, That's very upsetting. That's not good. Okay. All right, what else you got?
1: All right, so in Politico um, this week, uh, the title is Meet the Renewable Energy Source Poised for Growth with the Help of the Oil Industry.
0: Uh, I smell a rat here. You Go smell ahead. a rat? Yeah.
1: No, nah, it's, actually, it's actually serious. Okay. And positive. The Biden administration is pushing oil and gas companies to take a serious look at incorporating geothermal projects into their business plans. At a December meeting of the National Petroleum Council, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm told the gathering of oil company executives, quote, think, you drill holes too. You go beneath the surface, you know where things are. And fracking really opens up a huge opportunity for enhanced geothermal. Unquote. Kelly Blake, president of the board of directors at Geothermal Rising, a geothermal focused trade association, commented, quote, not since, say, the 1970s, where there was a huge pivot to the geothermal side of the house, have we seen the type of interest that we're seeing today? It just really seems as though geothermal has an upward trajectory at the moment in terms of innovation, funding, interest at all levels of business, but also the government. End quote. Here's why. Companies that invest in geothermal projects and meet prevailing wage requirements, including the big oil companies like Exxon and Shell, would be eligible for a 30 percent tax credit under the Inflation Reduction Act, with an additional 10 percent applied if the project meets domestic content requirements or is located in an energy community, which includes area where a coal mine has closed or that have been economically reliant on fossil fuel extraction and processing. This is big news. Yeah. Okay. I mean this... geothermal is not new, but it's big news that that the oil and gas industry is making that shift, however slowly it looks like Something may be happening here.
0: Well, like Holmes said, you're already in the drilling business. You know how to drill holes. You know how to work underground. You're the perfect people to do geothermal. Exactly. I just, I, I'm sorry. I just don't really trust Exxon <laughs> and Shell. <laughs> you know, to be doing the right thing all well, of a
1: sudden. Well, I know, especially since we talked last week about how they've known since the 1970s
0: about climate change.
1: Exactly yeah. what was going to happen. I mean, to the degree <laughs> of warming. They actually knew that in the 1970s. All right. So let me finish this. Now we're going to trust them. Okay. Right. So geothermal development may benefit from the know-how and data that oil and drilling companies have already accumulated over the past decade. Right. The industry already possesses maps of existing geothermal hotspots, and engineering advances hold the potential to make even dry geothermal wells, those that have heat but no fluid, profitable in the future. Working in the industry's favor is long-time bipartisan interest, with the technology receiving boosted funding under both Republican and Democratic administrations, making it a potential area of interest as lawmakers head into a divided Congress.
0: Boy, is it divided! So, well, well, well you Ge- know, when
1: we when we had our energy conferences, you know, like five years ago, geothermal was there big time. I mean, front row.
0: Geothermal is a great technology. Yeah. taking advantage of the natural heat of the earth to heat and cool your house or your apartment or your office building or whatever it is. Correct. And it's, you know it's something that doesn't change and it's something that really really saves money over the long term. I understand it's there's a higher capital cost going in. Right. But geothermal it doesn't go away, yeah. it doesn't run out. We're not you know hurting anybody by uh, by right. using it. Right. So
1: And the technology has actually improved. So we're into our you know, yeah. second, third generation of geothermal technology now, and it's, it's getting cheaper, and it's getting more efficient, and it's time for the oil and gas companies to just divert
0: well i'm glad to see the attention. i'm glad to see the infrastructure bill is providing some money for for people who do that mm-hmm. so there's mm-hmm. an incentive for it to happen. absolutely okay good all right what else you got
1: okay and this is from npr reported by nathan Rott and the title is extreme weather fueled by climate change cost the u.s 165 billion dollars in 2022. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. The annual report from the nation's premier meteorological institution, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA, or NOAA, highlights a troubling trend. Extreme weather events fueled by human-caused climate change are occurring at a higher frequency with an increased cost in both dollars and lives. Dr. Rick Spinrad, NOAA's administrator, said, climate change is creating more and more intense, extreme events that cause significant damage and often sets off cascading hazards like intense drought, followed by devastating wildfires, followed by dangerous flooding and mudslides. In five of the last six years, costs from climate and weather-related disasters have exceeded $100 billion annually. The average number of billion-dollar disasters has surged over that time driven by a combination of increased exposure of people living in and moving to hazardous areas, vulnerability due to increasing hazards like wind speed and fire intensity, and a warming climate, the NOAA report said. Climate-fueled hurricanes in particular are driving up damages. Hurricane Ian, which killed at least 150 people and pancaked entire neighborhoods when it made landfall in Florida as a Category 4 hurricane, Cost $112.9 billion alone.
0: Well, okay, but you know, when people build their houses right on the water and then the water comes up and then the houses, you know, fall into it, you know, how much sympathy should you have for those people and should they really be, you know, rebuilding all over again? You know, okay, whatever. Go on.
1: Adam Smith, an applied climatologist at NOAA, said there are, unfortunately, several trends that are not going in the right direction for us. For example, the United States has been impacted by a landfalling Category 4 or 5 hurricane in five out of the last six years. The rise in frequency and intensity of extreme weather events mirrors a rise in global temperatures. The last eight years have been the warmest in modern history. Average global temperatures have increased 1.2 degrees Celsius since the Industrial Revolution, when humans started the widespread burning of fossil fuels to power economies and development.
0: Okay, so that probably wasn't the best idea we've ever had?
1: To reduce the threat of deadly and costly weather events, scientists say the world needs to limit warming by urgently cutting climate warming emissions. But as evidenced by recent events, the impacts of climate change are already here and adaptation efforts are needed as well.
0: Well, maybe the money will finally convince people that we have to do something. Maybe the expenditures on cleaning up after these gigantic storms will finally begin to ring the bell, you know, in boardrooms around the world that, you know what, we're going to have a real problem here. And it's going to cost us. It's
1: not we're going to. We have a real problem. It's here. And no one's going to be able to stop
0: it. Well, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, when their gigantic, you know, million dollar vacation houses get totaled by a hurricane. You know, maybe they'll think about it. I don't don't know. know. Am I I being optimistic?
1: Well, maybe. But, you know, the Union of Concerned Scientists um, put out a statement. And they said, rather than responding in a one-off manner to disasters within the U.S., Congress should implement a comprehensive national climate resilience strategy, commensurate with the harm and risks we're already facing. I mean, it's here, but I think you're right. I think
0: the cost of all of this is going to- Eventually that's gonna do it. You know, humans may not care about taking care of each other, we may not-
1: Eventually it's gonna do it, but it's only gonna do it for, you know, generations in the future, like three or four generations out. It's not going to do it for us right now. You can't reverse it. There's no reversing, no matter what we do right now. You can't reverse the trajectory that these climate disasters are on right now.
0: And we think that Congress is going
1: to is going to do something. Well, I mean, that's what Lauren Bobert, <laughs> Union of and, and, Concerned and, and Scientists said. Maybe we should do that.
0: Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobert are going to save the world. No, I won't go there. Don't go there.
1: In, in our current political climate, it looks highly unlikely that climate change is going to be a major priority. Yeah. And especially because what they decide to do will really be impacting generations and generations and generations that follow.
0: All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. The agriculture industry is in big trouble. Like our streets, our parks, our rivers, and our oceans, our cropland has been inundated with plastic. Tiny little pieces of plastic that you would think would be so innocuous that it wouldn't matter. But you'd be wrong about that. We've covered the issue of plastic pollution on a lot of episodes of Green Street News, but mostly in terms of their environmental impact. How they accumulate in our oceans and end up in the fish we eat. We've talked about how microplastics are showing up in the blood of humans, including newborn babies. Maybe it's not surprising. We wear plastic clothes, package our food in plastic containers, eat with plastic utensils, drink from plastic bottles. We play sports on plastic fields, work at computers with plastic keys and screens. We talk on plastic phones, drive cars with plastic seats, sleep in plastic sheets, and give our kids plastic toys and every piece of plastic ever made is still here on Earth somewhere in some form. Yes, plastic does break down, but that doesn't mean it disappears. That means it breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces until you can't even see them anymore. They're so small they can be carried hundreds or thousands of miles away by the wind and deposited in the snow at the Arctic Circle or in the river in the Amazon. Microplastics are everywhere.
2: My sister called me, and uh, she said, well, Mary Beth, what is the effect of microplastics on plants? And I said, well, I really don't know. No work's been done. She said, well, Mary Beth, why don't you just take your Cuisinart, grind up some plastic bottles, and put it in the soil? And uh, I said, okay, Vicki, I'll do that.
0: That's Dr. Mary Beth Kirkham, University Distinguished Professor at Kansas State University and one of the nation's leading authorities on microplastics and their impact on agriculture. Dr. Kirkham comes from a family of soil scientists following in her father's footsteps, and for more than 40 years, she's been studying how plants work.
2: I actually bridge both soil science and plant science. I work in an area called soil-plant-water relations, and I teach a graduate-level class each spring semester called plant-water relations, but I include the soil. And so in my class, I follow the movement of water from the soil into the plant, up the plant, and then out into the atmosphere. My first job was with the US EPA, and there I was assigned a completely new area. It was the uptake of heavy metals by plants grown with sewage sludge. And when you spread sewage sludge on the soil, you have heavy metals. And so I changed my research from soil-plant water relations to uptake of heavy metals by plants. And I've studied the two areas throughout my career.
0: One of the things that interested Dr. Kirkham was just how plants took up heavy metals like cadmium from things like sewage sludge. How did the cadmium actually get into the plant?
2: I have spent most of my career since I was with the US EPA studying cadmium because it is the most toxic of those elements at least it's most available plants take it up readily it's um, absorbed by the roots and cadmium is ubiquitous in the environment it's in batteries and it's in uh, when we spin our wheels our tires along the highway it burns off because rubber has cadmium in it and so it collects along the roadside And then uh, agronomically, it's very important because any time you put phosphate fertilizer on the soil, you are adding cadmium because the two occur geologically together. You, You can't avoid it.
0: Mary Beth Kirkham knows about cadmium. It's a toxic metal that can cause severe, acute, or chronic effects in humans mostly through diet. Chronic, low-level cadmium exposure can impact a variety of vital organs, with the kidneys and bones being the principal targets. It's nothing to fool around with. Dr. Kirkham and a colleague wrote the definitive textbook on cadmium and other heavy metals in soils and how they can or can't be remediated. One day, she got a call from her colleague proposing a different subject.
2: Would you like to co-edit a book on microplastics? And I said, well, I've never worked with microplastics. But I knew what an important topic it was, and so I agreed. And this book has turned out to be really popular. It's called Particular Plastics in Terrestrial and Aquatic Environments. And the reason we called it Particular Plastics instead of Microplastics is because the particulate plastics includes both the nanoplastics, which are the nanometer size as well as microplastics, which are the micrometer size. So we're looking at plastics that vary in size all the way from about five millimeters down to about 100 nanometers. So we're we're covering the whole range.
0: Her sister had asked her about it, and now her colleague was asking about it. It was time for some basic lab work.
2: So I took some microplastics that are called polyethylene glycol and I added the polyethylene glycol to the soil. And then I also knew that these microplastics in the soil also are potent vectors for the uptake of heavy metals, and that's where the heavy metals come in. That due to the high surface area of the microplastics and also their polarity, they attract these heavy metals. So I put the microplastics in the soil, and of course had some control soil without the microplastics. And I had three treatments. I had control soil and then I had soil where I mixed in the microplastics dry. And then I had another treatment where I irrigated the microplastics onto the soil. They weren't in the soil originally, but I dissolved them in water and then irrigated them all. So I had those three treatments and I planted seeds. And then about 16 days into the experiment, my plants with microplastics started to wilt and turn yellow. And that was because the microplastics were plugging the soil. Uh, They were clogging the soil pores because these microplastics attracted water. So water couldn't infiltrate into the soil and the soil lacked oxygen and the plants started to die. Then at the end of the experiment, I had to terminate the experiment about 28 days into it because my treated plants were essentially dead. Uh, and there was no reason to carry it on any further. And then I sent the plants to the soil testing lab, and I got the results back from the soil testing lab for the cadmium in the plants, and I thought the lady there who's in charge of the lab had made a mistake, and I said, this can't be right. And she said, oh no, we have good quality control, I checked everything, and the plants that grew with the microplastics had a lot more cadmium in them than the plants that grew without the microplastics.
0: There was no mistake. The plastic in the soil was doing two things. It attracted heavy metals like cadmium and carried them into the plant with the uptake of water. And eventually, they clogged up the source of water so the plants died. A double whammy. But how is the plastic getting into the soil in the first place, Dr. Kirkham wondered. Microplastics in the air couldn't account for all of it
2: why would there be microplastics in the farmer's soils, and that gets into the whole area of the use of microplastics in agriculture. We are using tons of plastics. They're used in greenhouses, they're used in what we call high tunnels, which are tunnels that are put over the soil to protect the plants and extends the growing season both in the spring and the fall, and the major use is what we call plastic mulches. Now Usually when you, we talk about a mulch, we think of like leaves or straw, but this is actually plastic. It's a plastic film that's laid down on the soil, and farmers use this a lot to warm the soil, to prevent weeds from growing, to protect the soil from insects and so on. And we are using it a lot in the United States, and even more is being used in China. People have told me over in China it's now called a white revolution instead of a green revolution because just everywhere you look in China there are these white mulches. Out west we irrigate a lot and if the microplastics in the soil run off into the irrigation water and the farmer irrigates his plants or her plants with the microplastics then the plants are going to take up the cadmium this is a great concern. When I was hired by the EPA back in, uh, you know, 40 plus years ago, the major concerns of sewage flood spread on agricultural land were the heavy metals, the pathogens, and a nitrogen in excess of crop need. Now we have this fourth concern, which is microplastics. We have a lot of clothes, have microplastics, and when we wash our clothes, the laundry wash water has microplastics that goes into the sewage system, and also uh, we have personal care products that have microplastics, and we wash that down the drain, and then also just runoff from the street. So all of that will lead to microplastics, and there, there have been quite a few articles written on that, and so it is a big concern.
0: So microplastics in the soil are increasing the toxicity of plants we use for food. We don't yet know if the microplastics themselves are being taken up by the plant. More research is needed on that score.
2: What I think we need is an assessment of the cycle of these microplastics going from the terrestrial environment into the aquatic environment. We certainly need to study the magnitude of the problem. These plastics are going to be around for hundreds of years generations and generations and generations and so as you say we're going to have to stop the production of them. The the plastics only became in use in like the early 1960s. I grew up and when I drank milk I drank it out of a glass bottle and we, we just didn't have plastics. It was really a, a treat to have a, a plastic plate. And also, uh, microorganisms haven't evolved in this short period of time to degrade plastics. What we would like is ultimately to have anything degrade into carbon dioxide and water, the ultimate two molecules that are completely innocuous. But microorganisms don't. They haven't evolved. They don't have the enzymes to break down the plastic. So even if you put plastics in the soil, even biodegradable plastics, they're not going to break down. They're going to be in the soil for a long, long time.
0: So, what is to be done? We haven't yet discovered an organism that eats plastic, breaking it down into its organic components. Recycling isn't really working either. Estimates are we're successfully recycling only about 5% of the plastic waste stream, and that depends on how you measure success and what actually happens to that old plastic. Mary Beth Kirkham minces no words when it comes to her own solution.
2: So I'm suggesting we need to ban plastics entirely, and I know people say that's too dramatic. I had a colleague say, well, he had a, a friend who had a, a plastic stent put in his heart, you know. So, okay, I think there's some very special uses that we could have for plastics, medical uses. But this massive use in plastic bags and so on, I think we're going to have to stop the use. And we can go back to some of the earlier ways that people put mulches in the soil. People had paper mulches. As I say, we had glass bottles and we had glass greenhouses glass greenhouses lasted a lot longer than plastic greenhouses. So I think we're going to have to rethink the way we we do things.
0: Dr. Mary Beth Kirkham, university distinguished professor at Kansas State University and one of the nation's leading authorities on microplastics and their impact on agriculture. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again on our website, greenstreetnews.org, where you can also give us feedback on the show and let us know if there are stories you want us to cover. We love to hear from you. You can also catch Green Street News on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends, won't you? That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Mary Beth Kirkham, our friends at WBAI-FM in New York City, and all of you who make this show possible. Patty and I will be back next week with another episode of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.